Good morning, Trinity. It's wonderful to be here worshiping with you all. Um, I'm Kendra, and this is my son, Creighton, and we have the privilege of reading Matthew. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. These words are true. Will you all pray with me? Lord, I, we thank you for today. We thank you for this opportunity to gather as your body, as your bride, as the church. Lord, we thank you um, in advance for the ways that you're going to speak to us. We thank you that even though many of us in the room, some of us in the room may have shown up today out of routine, Sunday morning we show up, we get up, we go to church. Uh, Lord, I thank you that you can work far greater um, than any routine, Lord, that you can work even in what we feel might even be mundane, getting up on a cold morning, there's snow, kind of dreading getting the car going, uh, showing up. Lord, we thank you that you are far more powerful than our own hesitancies, than our own um, mundane routines. So, Lord, I just thank you that you brought all of us here uh, this morning, gathered here, whether we're here with excitement to hear from the word of the Lord or we're here just out of routine. Lord, I ask that you would level the playing field, that you would level all of us, and that we would be, um, we would have open ears and open eyes. So like Pastor Mike encourages us, I encourage you, pray for yourself. Pray, um, ask God to set aside distractions. If there's something that keeps coming to your mind, perhaps it's not a distraction, but perhaps it is Lord directing you to something. Ask God to speak to you clearly today. Pray for the people next to you. Pray that the Holy Spirit would fill their ears as we open the Bible today. That the Holy Spirit would fill their hearts, their minds, their souls. Pray that God would speak clearly to the people around you. Pray for our children and Trinity kids. Pray that though they might see it as games and crafts and songs, Lord, we ask that you would use them to build a foundation built on you solely, that they would leave today with a better understanding of the character of God. Lord, we pray for our people, not in this room, the people online. We pray for the people at other campuses that are on their way currently. Lord, we pray for our missionaries scattered around the world that are waking up today to push the gospel deeper and further into their communities. Lord, have mercy. Lord, give them power. 
give them patience, give them grace, give them wisdom, give them joy as gospel bearers. Lord, we love you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you guys can all have a seat. If you don't know me, my name is Ty Combs. I'm one of the next-gen pastors here at Trinity Church. Specifically, uh, I deal with student ministry. So when we say students here at Trinity, we mean grades 5 through 12 is kind of the word we use. Some of you might have known like youth ministry. We call it student ministry here. Um, so Trinity Kids is birth through fourth grade, and then Trinity Student Ministry is fifth grade through twelfth grade. So that fifth through twelfth grade is kind of my, it's where I live. Um, dealing with students, and I, I love it. I love it so much. Last week, Pastor Ty Hill preached to you, and he talked about how New Year's Eve is kind of like Youth Pastor Sunday, uh, where lead pastors typically get a little bit of a break. Pastor Mike's lucky enough to have two of us, so he gets two weeks off. So he let me come. So maybe that was intentional. I'm not sure. Uh, but Pastor Ty Hill preached to you all last week about family foundations and how crucially important it is to build your family your foundation on Christ and Christ alone. And my family's in the middle of that. I have a one-year-old. He turns two in a couple weeks. Uh, and I have a three-year-old. So we're in the midst of, it's this weird roller coaster of like some days are just pure survival. Some days we're like really intentional, but most of the days are just kind of like survival. Like when, what's dinner? Just eat your dinner. Just sit down. No, don't eat your ketchup with your hands. Just that's kind of the mode we're in, but it is a great reminder to build that foundation. Uh, on Christ. So my one-year-old, Ezra, he's, I mean, he's a lot. He is a lot, but he, he loves ketchup. He loves to say ketchup. He's saying more and more words. He's in a really fun stage, so he loves to say ketchup, but he loves the P at the end. He says, ketchup, ketchup. So he, I'm not kidding you, he will just, with his hands, he will just scoop ketchup up with his hands. Uh, but he loves yellow. His favorite color is yellow. I think because that's the only color he can say. So if you say, Ezra, what color is this? He'll say, yellow yellow to everything. It can be red. He was like, yellow. But he knows what yellow is because when we see a school bus, he loses it. Yellow, 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 yellow. Uh, and Eliza, my three-year-old, she loves school buses so much. When we drive to school, we see one, she's in the back seat, and she goes, school bus, yeah. She does this like, yeah, I should have got a video of it. It's awesome. So on our way to school, we live close to the uh, bus what do you call it? Bus Depot? I don't know. You know that spot on Cumberland Road where all the Hamilton Southeastern buses are parked? We live pretty close to there. So when we come to childcare here every morning, we see like 20 some school buses. And so our drive to church is just full of, yeah, yellow, 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 yeah. And so we count, and it's the highlight of the day. We come home that day, and Eliza's like, Mommy, Mommy, this morning I saw 25 school buses. She can't count, but she just picks a big number uh, and says school buses. So, school bus. So if you see me driving, here and you see me doing this in the car, I'm not mad at somebody that cut me off. It's just me and my family just cheering for school bus after school bus because it's yellow and Eliza loves them. Uh, so that's become a highlight of my day also, seeing school buses. Um, but like I said, uh, I'm the director of student ministry here. And school buses for me are a good reminder. The sheer quantity of school buses that we have is pretty Unreal. I grew up in a really tall, small community where one bus drove by your house. Here in my neighborhood, I, I feel like at any given point in time, I can hear like two school buses in the morning. And it's a good reminder of just the sheer quantity of young people that we have in our community. And that's one of the reasons I love my job. I think I have, I'm convinced that I have the best job in the world. And I'm here today to convince you that it's true. 
So you might think your job's awesome. It might be, but it's not as good as mine. Because my job, I get to do a lot of crazy stuff. A few months ago, I was smashing pumpkins filled with paint in the parking lot, and that was like a day at work for me. Uh, I get to go on retreats and conferences and camps. Some of our teenagers just came back from the follow conference. Uh, my job is a lot of fun, but it's also, I would say, the, in my opinion, the most fruitful job, getting to see these fifth through 12th graders. Many of them in our church have that really solid foundation, getting to see that come to life for them and getting to see them understand why that foundation is important and claim it as their own and make their own decisions. So my job is the perfect blend of fun and fruitful, and it's the best job there is. And by the end of the morning, you will agree with me. Um, so in the, uh, for this part, though, I'm going to need some crowd participation. So I'm going to ask you to raise your hands. I'm not going to fact check anybody. I'm not going to call on anybody. With high schoolers, when you ask them to raise their hand, some people raise their hand no matter what. Some people never raise their hand no matter what. So I'm just asking you to raise your hand if these questions are true for you. First one, how many of you know the date that you became a Christian? Like the exact date uh, that you became a Christian. I'm not going to call you out and ask you what it is or what happened. Just how many of you have that date in mind? You have a date. All right, all right. I'm pretty sure on mine, though I'm not very organized, so it could be a few days off. So I'm, I'm with you. So then my next question, how many of you, you don't know the exact date that you became a Christian, that you decided to follow Jesus, but you have in your mind like a kind of a ballpark, you know, about how old you were, maybe you remember where it happened. You like remember kind of the ballpark area. If that's you, you know about when you became a Christian, raise your hand. Okay, yeah, I'm with you. I'm one of y'all too. All right, so now uh, I will stop right there. If when I ask those two questions, if you didn't know how to answer it, take note of that. I would say if you don't know the exact day or even really a ballpark day that that happened, I would say don't move on this morning and just ignore that and say, I didn't know. Um, for me, my story, I thought I was following Jesus. And then one of my college roommates asked me that question in a different way. But he was like, when did you accept Jesus? When did that really happen? And I was like, ah, I don't know, sometime in the past. And he kept asking me, kept asking me, I was like, I don't know that I have a moment where I, like, decided. Um, and for me, it's because that moment hadn't happened yet. So I'm not projecting that onto you, but I will say if those first two questions made you a little uneasy because you weren't sure how to answer them, don't ignore that. All right, anyway, that's not the point of why we're here this morning, but I did want to point that out because uh, that was meaningful in my own journey. All right, here's the last question I have. How many of you... You might raise your hand again here. If you raised it previously, you can do it again. How many of you, that date or that ballpark day that you became a Christian was before the age of 18? Were you before the age of 18? Look around. If you're in the front, turn around a little bit and realize you're not alone. According to the Barna Group, 94% of Christians today made their decision to follow Jesus before the age of 18. 94% of Christians today made their decision to follow Jesus before the age of 18. When uh, I met with Pastor Mike and to talk about what I was supposed to preach on today, um, and he just said, let's just talk about our young people. I got, I got goosebumps because I was so excited to be able to share some of this stuff with you. And I thought, maybe I just throw this slide up, read it three or four times, and then walk away because I think... I think that right there says just about enough. 94% of Christians today 
made their decision to follow Jesus before the age of 18. That's close enough to 100%. You could say almost all Christians today made their decision before the age of 18. You guys, this slide is one of the big reasons I say that I have the best job in the world, I have the most fruitful job in the world, because this is true, and it's been true, I think, for a long, long time, and I think it's going to continue to be true for a long, long time. I think this slide was probably, the statistic was probably true not long after Jesus was on this earth, and I think it's probably been true for a long time. I love my job. Sometimes it's really fun. Sometimes it's really hard. Because if you've had teenagers, you know that sometimes, how do I say this lovingly? We have some in the room. Sometimes common sense isn't a forte for teenagers yet. Sometimes teenagers know exactly what to do and they choose to not do it. Teenagers, if that's you, don't worry. It happens as adults too. Um, sometimes my job's really hard. Sometimes it's really hard to invest in other families so much and I have my own family though I have a really healthy work-life balance at times, there's, it's hard. But then when I think about it, I think I also, I wonder if I have the easiest job in the world. And what I mean by that is I have a little bit of a cheat code for my job. If you guys ever play video games, anybody in my generation, you know cheat codes. You like play a video game, you like up, down, right, left, right, right. It feels like I have one of those uh, with my job because my wife hates this joke, but it's not really a joke. It's kind of a joke, kind of true. Jesus himself was a youth pastor. And so I have a little bit of a cheat code that when I read through the gospels, it's just like story after story after story after story about how Jesus invested in young people around him. So today, what we're gonna do is we're going to look at two specific disciples that typically get kind of lumped in together. Today, I wanna contrast them and look at how they're different and how vastly different their experiences were with Jesus because of how old they were. So we're going to be looking at Peter and John. Uh, so if you want, you can flip to Matthew 4. Um, I don't even think I have this on the screen, but if you want to kind of read along, Matthew 4 is where we're going to be for the next couple minutes. Uh, so Jesus chose 12 people in Matthew chapter 4. And when we look at it, we realize that these 12 people were all pretty young. And we're going to do like a deep dive on exactly how old a couple of them were. And something that might surprise you is Peter kind of gets a rap as like, let's be honest, Peter's kind of the dumb one of the 12. He's the one that messes up the most. But all evidence points to Peter actually being the oldest of all 12 disciples. Peter was a, he was married. His mother-in-law lived with him. When Jesus calls him in Matthew 4, he leaves his boats, presumably with some of his younger employees. So Peter is kind of like a small business owner. Think of him like that, not a teenager. Peter's probably mid-20s, married, providing for his family, runs a small business with his brother. When Jesus calls him, he leaves that small business beside, aside to go follow Jesus. So evidence points to Peter being one of the older disciples. Many agree that he's the oldest. And John is commonly agreed upon among historians as being the youngest of the disciples. And if not the youngest, he's one of the youngest. Part of this evidence is John writes the Gospel of John, the Book of John, you know, the, his Gospel account. He writes it in around the year 80 AD, and he writes it as an old man, and he's writing about his, like, childhood memories, you know, in the year 80. So some 50 years after all this happened, John is writing down his Gospel account. And all the ways that he's referenced shows that 
John is agreed upon as being like maybe between the ages of 15 and 17. So this morning, as we kind of look at these two stories, just keep in mind that Peter's probably mid-20s. John is probably 15, maybe 16 years old in Matthew 4 when Jesus calls him for the first time. And what I want to look at is that there is an obvious and distinct impact in John's life because he walked with Jesus during his formative teenage years. The 12 disciples all walked with Jesus the same amount, the same time. John and Peter were even in the inner circle. They got access to pretty much identical experiences, but the way it affected John is vastly different than how it affected Peter. And I think it's largely due in part to the age and stage of life that John was in at that time. Some of the things that make us know that John had a distinct impact were uh, John's gospel account, the way that he writes the book of John. So we have Matthew, Mark, Luke are the three of the gospels, and then John, right? So we've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. The first three we call the synoptic gospels. You've probably heard that before. Synoptic, sin, not like S-I-N, bad thing, sin, but sin like S-Y-N, like synchronized, uh, sync, the same thing, optic, view, vision. So it's, it basically means they're written from a similar perspective, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John is the outlier in that John doesn't write nearly as much about the specific actions of Christ, but he writes way more about the love of Christ and the concept of love and how he experienced that for himself. So his gospel account is vastly different than the other disciples that wrote the same story. He writes his vastly differently. Uh, and I think it's because of the time, because he's reminiscing about when he was a child and his experience with Jesus. Another one is his, John's memory of Jesus' death and resurrection. So the book of John is 21 chapters long. He didn't write 21 chapters, but we chopped it up like that. Nine of those 21 chapters are about the last week of Jesus' life. He has a vivid memory. He goes into detail about the last week of Jesus' life. And remember, John writes this decades and decades and decades after it's happened. So again, John is an old man remembering events that happened in his youth, and he remembers them so vividly so vividly with such detail. John's memory is another way that we know that John was affected uniquely. And then the last one is how John views himself. In the book of John, in his gospel account, there's five times that John refers to himself, not by name, but he refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. And when you first read it, you're like, well, that's kind of a boastful, big-headed way to see yourself, John. Like, you just wrote a whole book about how much Jesus loves everybody, but then you call yourself the one who Jesus loved. John doesn't write that out of, you know, uh, pride. He doesn't write that saying that Jesus didn't really love the others. Rather, John, in his old age, looks back and he realizes that being a person that Jesus loved is his greatest identity. So he's not discounting the love for others, but he's rather saying, after I've seen Jesus, I've walked with Jesus, I've lived a long life, my greatest identity is found in being a person whom Jesus loved. And that wisdom is really distinct in John's writing. And again, it's because he walked with Jesus when he was a teenager. So all of this is actually really well depicted in this really famous piece of art you've probably seen called The Last Supper. Um, so have you guys seen this painting before? Anybody here really into art? 
I'm kind of into it. I'm starting to appreciate it because when people label it like this, it's way easier. Um, so, so let's zoom in on the right-hand side here. So we've got, you know, about half of the disciples, the older ones. Notice how John's not in this. Uh, they're kind of arguing. It looks like the ones on the end, they're like, why didn't you sit closer to Jesus? Why are we out here on the end? The other guys are kind of like, what's, what's he saying? I can't hear him. And Thomas is like, so you're going to go up, up there? Like, they're all just really confused. None of them look super happy to be here. They're kind of arguing with one another. They just have a lot of questions. It's just a little bit of chaos over here on the left side of the table. All right, let's go to the right side of the table now. All right, we got a few. The ones on the end, again, seem a little frustrated that they're so far away. But then let's look at John. You see John right there? Do you see how he looks so much? Once you see it, you can't unsee it. That John looks so different than the rest. You see how John, like little baby-faced John, he's just sitting there, not a care in the world. He's like, I don't know, maybe even falling asleep. He's just so happy to be there. And remember, at this moment, at this dinner, Jesus is telling them what's about to happen. So John is hearing what's about to happen, and it's chaos. Everybody else is arguing about it, asking questions. John has not a care in the world. He's just happy to be there. He sits closest to Jesus. I like to think that John, when they open the doors and, uh, to get to dinner, and they see Jesus sitting at the middle of this table. First of all, I don't know why they all sat on the same side, but it seems very inefficient. But when they get in and they see, okay, there's 13 chairs lined up, Jesus is in the middle. I like to think John being like the kid of all of them, he like cuts in front of people and he like pushes them aside. He's like, I want to sit by Jesus. And he sits down there and then you got Bartholomew on the end. He's like, again? So John's sitting closest to Jesus, not a care in the world. And then do you see Peter? You can't really see it too well, but Peter, the guy's got a knife in his hand. He's like right here. Do you see that knife? Peter's like, leaning in, trying to like ask, what's going on? What's going on? And Peter is just ready. The dude is just ready for battle, ready to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. So right there, just in those, in that little picture, look at the contrast between Peter and John. Peter and John have incredibly similar callings. They're both fishing. They both left people they loved. They left their work to go follow Jesus. Peter and John also were in Jesus' inner circle, so they, had, they were the ones invited to the transfiguration. They were the ones asked to pray. They had access to Jesus in unique ways. They had very similar callings and stories, but they have vastly, vastly different views of Jesus. I would say it like this. For three years, Peter, likely in his mid-20s, tries to make Jesus fit into his own assumptions and expectations of what a Messiah would do. Meanwhile, like a sponge, the younger teenage John marvels at Jesus' every word and is shaped by his every action. Like a sponge, the younger teenage John marvels at Jesus' every word and is shaped by his every action. All right, so now, now that we've uh, looked at who Peter and John are, we've kind of identified who the disciples are, specifically the bookends of the 12, if you will, Peter being the oldest, John being the youngest. Now let's do a look at how Jesus interacts with them, how Jesus teaches these young people, uh, how he invests in the young people. So the book of John was written by John, the youngest one. It was written many, many years later. We, discuss, we discussed that. Now I want to introduce the book of Matthew to you. Matthew was a tax collector. Matthew was really orderly, very organized. Matthew's gospel is very intentionally in order. 
everything. Matthew's probably one of those guys that had like an online calendar like on his phone, but also had like a digital uh, or a paper calendar that he wrote on and they matched up, loved Excel. Like, I'm not, I'm not a Matthew. But Matthew is very organized, very orderly. So when we want to look at specific timelines and tactics that Jesus used, we look at the book of Matthew. And then to see how it affected John, we look at his gospel to see how it impacted him. So we're going to be in the book of Matthew looking at how Jesus interacted with John. Does that make sense? A little confusing, I get it, but just go with me. All right, so Matthew, chapters 1, 2, and 3 are the genealogy, the birth of Jesus, the John the Baptist preparing the way. Chapters 4 is what we were actually just looking at, where Jesus calls his disciples. And then Matthew 5, 6, and 7, that's the Sermon on the Mount, you know, the famous sermon um, that Jesus had. So Jesus calls his 12 disciples. He lets them observe him preaching to the masses. Then chapters 8 and 9 are Jesus healing people in a more one-on-one setting, more intimate. He's doing house visits. Uh, And again, the 12 disciples are there observing. So he calls his 12, they observe him preaching to the masses, they observe him healing people one-on-one, and then at the end of chapter 9, again, this is very early on, this is just a few months after John started to follow Jesus, a few months later, something crazy happens, it's what was read earlier, but I'm going to read it again, but this time I want you to read it, and I want you to just imagine you're John, put yourself in John's shoes. You're a 15-year-old kid, you left your dad to follow this guy, and it's pretty cool. He's preaching, he's really good at speaking, he's healing people, he's performing miracle after miracle, and you get a front row seat to all of it, and you've got to be thinking, this is awesome to sit, you know, courtside at this game. Like, I get to see all of this happening, I get to watch this guy, how exciting that I get to just watch a man that's like no man that's ever lived before. I get to watch him. And then this happens. Matthew chapter 9, you can put these up on the screen. Matthew chapter 9, uh, the, end of verse, the end of chapter 9 and the beginning of verse 10, or chapter 10. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him, and he gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. Jesus called the disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and heal every disease and sickness. So Jesus calls his 12, lets them observe him preaching, lets them observe him doing stuff one-on-one, and then pretty immediately says, now it's your turn. You go and do it. You have the authority. And just imagine what's going on in John's mind. Like, whoa, 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 whoa. I thought I was just going to watch. I'm, a, I'm just a kid. So if anybody had a reason to keep the keys to themselves, like, um, you know how in Harry Potter, Hagrid has this, like, huge keychain. He's the only guy that has every key to every door. And I don't know know why they need keys. Don't they have magic? But anyway, he has every key to every door. Nobody else has that. If anybody in the history of ever was, had the authority to have every key to every door ever, it would be Jesus, the Son of God, right? But in chapter 9, we see Jesus take the keys and he just tosses them to teenagers. He tosses the, king, the keys to the kingdom of God to a bunch of teenagers. Jesus doesn't hoard the keys of the kingdom of God. Rather, he is eager to hand them out. 
the recipients were not the most qualified on paper. What I mean by that is he didn't toss them to the Pharisees, to religious leaders, to priests, to people who were even following religious rabbis. He tossed them to some fishermen, young fishermen, but they were the most capable simply because they had been with Jesus. Fuller Youth Institute calls this concept keychain leadership, where instead of holding the keys for yourself, you make duplicates and you hand them out to young people to see what they are capable of. And we see that this is a crucial part of Jesus' ministry. All through chapter 10, he gives a lot of boundaries, safety nets, ways to not fail, but we see that it is so crucial for Jesus to give them authority. And that's one thing that I really want to hinge on. Jesus didn't just send out the 12 and say, all right, you've seen me do some awesome stuff, go tell everybody. Go tell everybody what you've seen. He doesn't say that. He's, he gives them authority to go do it for themselves. Jesus did not send out the 12 only to talk about the kingdom of God. Rather, he gave them the authority to heal the sick, raise the dead, and cleanse those who have leprosy and drive out demons. You guys, Jesus, the son of God, the one able to heal, to raise the dead, he looks at a group of teenagers and 20-somethings and he says, I want you guys to go raise the dead. You think John was excited? Think he was nervous? Think he was like, okay, this guy's a little crazy. I can't, I don't know. But Jesus tossed the keys to the kingdom of God to a bunch of teenagers and said, you go. And we know from the Gospels that it was messy. We know that the disciples didn't always do what they were supposed to do. In fact, quite the opposite. Throughout all the Gospels, we see Jesus do this a lot where he tosses the keys to the disciples, gives them authority. They encounter demons that they're not able to drive out because they just can't do it right. We see Peter, I mean, that night when he's holding the knife, that night after three years, Peter, the wise sage of the twelve, lops off a guy's ear because he's confused about what's happening. When they go to the transfiguration and Jesus allows them to see this, this amazing one-in-a-lifetime, one-in-a-eternity moment, they don't understand. Peter's trying to build houses so these spirits can just stay there. He, they just don't get it. The night that Jesus was betrayed, Jesus goes up to the garden to pray. Literally hours before he's arrested and eventually hung on a cross, Jesus, in his most distraught moments of his entire life, where he's up weeping, he's saying, God, if there's any other way. Jesus' weakest, most vulnerable moment, he asks Peter and John to pray for him. He says, I'm going up to be with my father. Stay here and pray for me that I will not fall into temptation. The, you guys, the son of God goes to speak with his father about a moment that all of eternity hinges on. And he asks a teenager to pray on his behalf. Do you feel the weight of that? And you know what happens? Jesus also said, and also, please don't fall asleep. And you know what they did? They, they fell asleep. Jesus knew they were going to mess up in all those instances. He knew they were going to mess up, but it didn't stop them. He gave them authority anyway. Not just privileges to observe, but he truly gave them authority. Go, raise the dead, pray for me. He gave them authority anyway. Parents, if you have teenagers, I know none of our teenagers here at Trinity have ever done anything wrong or been difficult children, but if you do have teenagers and you felt a struggle of teenagers that 
don't do what they're supposed to do. They don't hear you. It seems like maybe they hear you. They just don't care about what you're saying or they just mess stuff up. Take heart because Jesus himself has been there. Time after time again, he told a teenager what to do and they did the exact opposite. Pray for me. Whatever you do, don't fall asleep. The literal one thing you couldn't do, you did. You fell asleep. Take heart. Jesus himself has been there too. But then, this is where it turns, but then we get to the book of Acts. So we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and in the book of Acts, Acts of the Apostles, we get to see how did these 12 kids that just kind of messed everything up, how did they actually turn out? Well, the book of Acts is where we looked at. It's called the Acts of the Apostles. So Acts chapter 1, Jesus has resurrected from the dead. He reveals himself to his disciples, and then he goes up into heaven, and he sends them out again. He says, you will be my witnesses everywhere you go. Jesus ascends to heaven, Acts 1. Acts chapter 2, the Spirit of God, that's Pentecost, where they're all praying in a room, like, well, Jesus is gone. What do we do now? I don't know. I guess we'll pray. They pray. The Spirit of God fills them, fills the house, and fills each one of them individually in Acts chapter 2. And then Acts chapter 3 and 4 are hands down my favorite books of the Bible. I don't know if you're allowed to have favorites, but I do. Acts chapter 3 and 4, because this is where we see for the first time, specifically named Peter and John, the bookends. Peter and John, they have the keys to the kingdom of God, and they finally know how to use them. And we see them in Acts chapter 3. It says Peter and John are the ones healing the sick, proclaiming the gospel. And it says thousands and thousands and thousands are being added to the number each day. So we see all of the times they messed up for the past three years following Jesus himself. They didn't get it. But then finally, with the keys in their hand, keys to the kingdom of God, we see them just unlocking door after door after door. And the kingdom of God is filling communities and hearts at a far greater rate than it even was with Jesus. Peter and John are adding more to their number every day than Jesus himself was. They're on trial in Acts chapter 4. They say, what are, you, what are you doing? We thought we killed Jesus. We thought we ended all this madness. What's going on? They question them. Peter and John say, it is not our power that raises these people from the dead. It is the name of Jesus Christ, the one that you killed. Remember him? That's whose power it is. And it says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, remember, John's maybe 19 by this time, they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. So the Sanhedrin, the people they're on trial with say, okay, well, too many people have seen, we can't kill you now, then we'll be the enemy. So just please, whatever you do, just don't speak the name of Jesus anymore. And they replied with this, they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help but speaking about what we have seen and heard. Remember, John is a teenager when he gets up and says this on trial to the government. He said, well, he's told, whatever you do, do not speak about the name of Jesus. And John, a kid, stands up and says, I have seen far too much to ever stop. You can do whatever you want to me, but I will never stop proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ wherever I go. And I have to believe that those words were surprisingly easy for John to say because through his formative teenage years, he followed the Son of God so closely that when he left, he was so confident 
He was so confident that the name of Jesus Christ was the key to the kingdom of God, and now he knows how to use it. So, our, our young people here at Trinity, let's talk about us a little bit here. Here at Trinity, our young people, not only do we need to toss them the keys for them to go practice using them, for them to explore, for them to participate, I would go another layer deeper and I would say we as a church need them. We need our young people. Today's teens have more potential to receive the gospel than any other group. This is the 94% statistic. They have way more potential than any other group. But tied so tightly with that, the other side of that same coin, they also have far more potential to proclaim the gospel than any other group, any other stage, any other age. I did a quick little look. To my knowledge, there's, ten, there's uh, nine public high schools within 10 miles of one of our campuses, just in just the northern campuses. This does not even include Garfield Park. All right, you ready? Mount Vernon, this is just high schools. Mount Vernon, 1,300. HSC High School, 3,500. Noblesville, 3,100. Fishers High School, 3,500. Carmel, 5,400. North Central, 3,700. Lawrence North, 2,700. The total is 23,379. 23,379 high schoolers within reach of us as a church. I have another statistic I want to put up here. Between the ages of 14 and 18, that's high school. Between the ages of 14 and 18 in high school is where 85% of people make a faith decision that lasts their entire lifetime. Maybe we should change that. They make a faith decision that lasts eternity. And as a church, we are within 10 miles of more than 20,000 of these souls searching for answers. I'm going to invite Naomi up. We're going to wrap up here. I get asked kind of often, Ty, what do you want to do when you grow up? I'm 30, but I don't know. A youth pastor position is not often a, a long or uh, career that lasts a lifetime. And I get it. And a lot of times people are asking me, Ty, are you, do you have desires of being a lead pastor sometime? And that's a common on-ramp for a lot of people. For a lot of lead pastors, it is probably healthy for them to try their crazy ideas, get that out of their system, hone their skills, preach, you know, a little bit so they're ready for the big stage. And so I get asked that a lot. And I guess I would just, my response would be, I don't think there is a bigger stage. Sure, there are bigger platforms. Sure, there are bigger audiences, bigger auditoriums. But there is no greater stage of life where eternity hangs in the balances even close to what it does for our teenagers. And so as long as these statistics, 94% under the age of 18, 85% of people in high school, as long as these statistics are even remotely close to those numbers, I will give my life to investing in our teenagers because I believe in it, because that's, that's where people make decisions that last, last in eternity. 
And to put it simply, Jesus did the same. And he did it not just for the sake of the 12. He was not just trying to save those 12 souls. He was trying to build his church and he chose teenagers and look at us now. I know that's a lot and I know not everybody in the room has teenage kids and that's fine. I know not everybody in the room is a volunteer for student ministry or wants to be and that's fine. I'm not asking you to be. I'm I'm really not up here asking you to do that. But I am asking you how can you invest where you are in our young people and I'm just trying to show you what Jesus saw so clearly that the harvest is plentiful but the workers are few. The harvest is most plentiful in our teenagers and I would say our best workers are also teenagers. I mean at Trinity we do a great job of that. I mean even Naomi sitting up here, she was in TSM just a year ago. We, I just walked through Trinity Kids. We have a bunch of teenagers serving there. We often have them in the tech booth. When I hear stories of teenagers sharing the gospel, I'm just like, it's, you guys get it. You are our best asset and you rub shoulders with our greatest mission field. And so what I'm asking you to do as a church is a few things. The first one is I'm just asking you to listen to them. This is a point I had to skip over because I didn't have time, but I'm asking you to listen. What I mean by that is I think our young people, the greatest disservice we as a society do is we just talk at them. At school, they're taught how to think. At home, they're taught how to behave. At sports, they're taught how to perform. On social media, on a screen, they have peers telling them how to act, how to look, how to be perceived. Everybody is telling them what to do better. And I wonder, where are they learning how to listen? And so I dream of being a church that not only teaches our young people to listen, but models it for them. So what I mean by that is, in the lobby, when you see a family and you greet them, if they've got an elementary kid, kneel down, just give them a high five. I like your shoes, where'd you get them? Ask them a question and just listen. Don't talk about your shoes, they don't care. When you see a high schooler, shake their hand, ask them a question, what are you doing this summer? How's school? I know it's awkward, you might not know what to ask them, but ask them a question and just listen. Don't talk about when you were in high school, they don't care. Just ask them a question. Model listening. The second one is hand over the keys. Again, we as a church do a great job of this, I think. Um, But maybe this is with your own kids, maybe it's grandkids, maybe it's nieces, nephews, maybe it's a neighbor, there's some teenage kids. I don't know what it looks like for you, but I think, and it doesn't have to be super biblical or spiritual. I'm just asking you, see what these young people are capable of because Jesus did and look, look at what happened. The last one, is prayer. Next week we start the 21 days of prayer and I could make a case that we should spend all 21 days only praying about our young people. We will do more than that, but I'm asking you for the 21 days of prayer, I'm asking you to do a, to go a step above and beyond and have the thought, the focus point of our young people. Pray for them. They need to see you praying. They need to hear you praying. Model prayer for them. But also, I'm going to ask you to do something that you might think is really, that's something that you might dread. And that is, for the 21 days of prayer, drive through as many school zones as you can. And when you do, pray. As you go by the buildings, pray for the teachers inside. Pray for the administrators. Pray, pray for our Trinity students that might attend those. 
schools that have the gospel inside of them and aren't quite sure how to disperse it. Pray for the students in there that think they know everything about Jesus and they just don't care. Pray for the students that are going through a divorce and their families ripped apart and there's just hate everywhere and they have no foundation of the gospel. You guys, there's 20,000 high schoolers, just high schoolers within reach. As a youth pastor, I love hanging out with them. They're so much fun. And I love seeing them grow and mature. And I want to see them become husbands and wives and fathers and mothers and doctors and lawyers, pastors. I want to see all that. But there's something I want to see far more than that. I want to see... I want to see an army of people from our community that decided to follow Jesus. I want to see them in heaven. And I'm convinced that if we as a church invest in our young people, we can populate heaven even more. I want you to pull out your next steps cards. I'm going to end with this point and then I'm going to leave you with a question. When it comes to return on investment in the kingdom of God, I'm not talking about finances. When it comes to return on investment in the kingdom of God, hands down, the best thing you can do is invest in and pray for the teenagers in your life. I'll just state it simply. That is the best thing you can do. So my question for you on your next steps cards is how can you increase your investment in our young people? Again, I'm not asking you to volunteer with student ministry, though I welcome that. I'm not asking you to radically change your life and open your home to give foster or respite care to a teenager in need, though one could argue that's one of the best things we can do for our young people. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not here pleading with you to do that. I'm asking you to identify a few names that you have in your life and I'm asking you, how can you increase your investment? Because every inch that you invest in a young person, I believe is miles and miles and miles of an, in eternity. If you're really interested in praying for the next generation, you can go ahead and you can write prayer warrior on your next steps cards. We have that, you've probably heard about that. Um, at Trinity, every young person has the opportunity to have a person in our congregation pray for them every day. So you would be assigned a family that has a teenager or a kid in elementary or preschool. Um, my family has a prayer warrior and we love it. So if that's of interest to you to be a prayer warrior, if that's a way that you can increase investment, write that down. I'll follow up with you. But I don't care what it is. I don't know what it is for you. Pretty open-ended today, but I want you to just write, how can you increase your investment in our young people? Take a few minutes, fill out your next steps cards.